story and not just a good story but a memorable story uh, a delightful story and particularly I love those stories that do something to your heart they have the power to transform you and over the next few weeks we're going to immerse ourselves as a church in transformative stories stories which are found in the pages of the Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at one of those stories of transformation. 3,000 years ago, a man called Mephibosheth. And we're going to look at his story this morning. Now, some people query over the way that his name is pronounced. I say Mephibosheth. Julie says Mephibosheth. be interesting what you think. Well, first of all, have any of you not come across this guy? Okay, there's a few of you have not come across this uh, guy, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. How many of you would say that his name is Mephibosheth? Well, it's quite a few of you. How many of you would say it's Mephibosheth? <laughs> Julie says it is in Welsh. So Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, and hands up, you, you know, didn't matter to you at all. You couldn't care less. Okay, that's all of you. Right, okay. Well, this morning is going to be Mephibosheth, okay? Not because I'm right, but because I've got the microphone. Okay, to appreciate this great story in the scriptures, we, I need to introduce you to the cast. First of all, you have a king named Saul, and he was Israel's first king. And he was known for his size, for his strength, and also for his paranoia. He was the people's choice. Then Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan was the natural heir to the throne, and he was a good man and a good friend. Jonathan had a son, so Saul's grandson, and his name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan also had a friend, and that friend was called David, the shepherd boy. And Jonathan and David were like brothers. Their friendship was legendary. They were inseparable. David was God's choice to be the next king of Israel. One other character in this story, and that is a man named Ziba. Ziba was in the house of Saul as a servant. So the context of our reading this morning is that King Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed in battle. And David has now come to the throne. And we're going to pick up the reading this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down 
to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you the kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, You, a servant, will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Didn't I do well there with all those Mephibosheths? I think that if anybody had been sat on the front row, they would have got rather wet. (laughs) Well, even though Jonathan was the natural heir to the throne, he acknowledged that David would be the next king. And this didn't seem to compromise um, their relationship at all in any way. But David promised Jonathan that should anything ever happen to Jonathan, then David would act kindly to any members of his family who were left. And sometime later, as we read, the uh, King Saul and um, King, uh, uh, sorry, King Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, and the throne was then passed on to David. And in those days, if a king um, uh, lost his throne and the new king would come along, the new king would seek out members of the previous dynasty in order to kill them because they couldn't risk any uprisings coming in their nation. So when when Saul and Jonathan died, it was understandable that the rest of their family would get away as quickly as they possibly could. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? Pandemonium and panic. Now what this time, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth was only five years old. And upon hearing the news of uh, Saul's death and Jonathan's death, his nurse picked him up quickly and in her hurry she dropped him and he became crippled in both feet. Now many years pass and Mephibosheth is now an adult and he is living out his days with this severe handicap. David has not only taken the throne in Israel, but he has also won the hearts of the people. The entire nation of Israel are singing his praises. He has been hugely successful. He has expanded the boundaries of the nation from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. His military force is stronger than it has ever been. In history of Israel, he has never known defeat in battle. There's peace and prosperity in the land. And David as king is everyone's darling. 
And then one day, David ponders his many blessings and becomes quite overwhelmed at God's goodness to him. And then he remembers that promise that he made all those years before to his best friend, Jonathan, that should anything happen to him, he would look after his family. He would show kindness to them. And David wastes no time, and he asks the question, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? I love David's question. I really do. In verse 1 there of that chapter, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Notice he didn't ask, is there anyone deserving? He didn't ask, is there anyone able? He didn't ask, is there anyone qualified? He didn't ask, is there anyone who is astute in governmental matters? He didn't ask, is there a, someone who is a fine soldier that I could bring him into my army? He just asked, is there anyone? David wasn't thinking about himself. There were no ulterior motives here. There was, this wasn't some kind of political maneuver that you often see with politicians around election, election time kissing babies. There was none of that in what David did. It was a free will, an act of free will. The servant Zeba, his answer is famous. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And as I read that again this week, I almost sensed the reticence in Zeba's voice. Yes, yes, there is a family member. There is a son. But David, I'm not sure if you'd want him around. He's not kingly. He wouldn't fit in well with the castle crowd. He's not like one of your own sons or daughters. Only the, the elite walk in these corridors. And this kid can hardly walk. No wealth, no education, no training. What use would he be to you, almighty king David? Now, if Zeba thought that way, David certainly didn't. Where is he? There's an impatience in his question. And Ziba says he's in Lodabar, which means barren place. You see, probably throughout his life, Mephibosheth had been living in fear of being found by David. Thinking that if David, the new king, would ever get a hear of him, uh, a relative of Saul, being still alive, then he would be assassinated. So he chooses to live in this barren place, probably a wilderness, no crops, just a wasteland. And now that day which he has feared all through his life, that day has come upon him, that David knows where he is. More than that, he has called him to his palace. Can you imagine how fearful he would have been in meeting David at that moment? And I think David knew exactly how he felt. And David's first words to him were, don't be afraid. Then David promises to restore him to, to him all the land of his grandfather, King Saul. And he offers him a place at his own table. And he says to him in so many words, from now on, you are going to be a part of my family. Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Mephibosheth's ill-fitting shoes. Just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He can believe, he cannot believe what's happening to him. 
This is mind-blowing stuff. No wonder he says what he says in verse 8. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? <laughs> what an answer. In other words, David, I don't deserve anything from you. I'm despicable. I'm worthless. I've got nothing to offer you. You see, throughout his life, I can well imagine that people would have said many unkind things to Mephibosheth. They would have pointed the finger at his disability, perhaps written him off as a nobody long before the days of political correctness. On three occasions when Mephibosheth's name is used in this ancient story, it is quickly followed by the words, he was lame in both feet. You see, he was viewed by his disability. You could even say that his disability became his identity. His words to David, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? were probably the way that he was referred to down through the years since he was a child. Maybe that's the kind of terminology that people would have used when they looked and spoke to Mephibosheth. A dead dog. Worthless. A nobody. And when you hear something enough times, you can start to believe those words about yourself. He saw himself as insignificant and worthless. On three occasions in this story, we read of Mephibosheth as being crippled or lame in both feet, twice in this chapter and once previously. Perhaps that's why in the story we are told on four occasions that he is now going to eat at the king's table. How about that? Three times, lame in both feet, a cripple. Four times, he is going to be someone who sits at the king's table. And the balance needed to be redressed. He needed to see himself in a new light. Mephibosheth, well, he had done absolutely nothing to deserve such kindness. The kindness that he received from David was pure and adulterated, unwarranted, and deserved kindness. The Bible calls this grace. I was reading uh, again this week um, an American pastor and author by the name of Chuck Swindle. And it just caught my imagination um, when he wrote of what it might have been like around that king's table when they met as a family for food. And this is what he writes. I, think, I, I thought it was lovely, actually. The dinner bell rings through the king's palace, and David comes to the head of the table and sits down. In a few moments, Amnon, clever, crafty Amnon, sits to the left of David. Lovely and gracious Tamer, a charming and beautiful young woman, arrives and sits beside Amnon. And then across the way, Solomon walks slowly from his study. Precocious, brilliant, preoccupied Solomon, the heir apparent, sits down. And then Absalom, handsome, winsome Absalom, with beautiful flowing hair, black as a raven and down to his shoulders, sits down. That particular evening, Joab, the courageous warrior and David's commander of the troops, he has been invited to supper. Muscular, bronzed Joab is seated near the king. Afterwards, they wait. 
They hear the shuffling of feet. The clump, clump, clump of crutches as Mephibosheth rather awkwardly finds his place at the table and slips into his seat and the tablecloth covers his feet. I ask you, did Mephibosheth understand grace? What do you think? You bet he did. You bet he did. You see, this is not just a story, a great story. But this is a story, I believe, that transforms. Because in this story, we also see ourselves. We are Mephibosheth. We are, in God's eyes, undeserving and unworthy. Others might have said that nothing will ever come about in our lives. They will not amount to anything. We might have been written off by others. And yet, the king, and I'm now speaking of the king of kings, the God who created the universe, the one who has revealed himself to us as father, that he has reached down to us, undeserving though we are. And we've been singing about that grace this morning. And he has given us a place at the table. Wow, doesn't that want you make you just jump for joy? He has given us a place at the table. Wow. And you start a new status, a new standing. Not because of anything that we have done or because of anything that he sees in us, in you or me, but because of his amazing grace. You know, some people have told me over the years, and I, I know I've told you this before, that they, their favorite verse is, God helps those who help themselves. And I've often said to them, there are two problems I have with that. First of all, that is not a verse in the Bible. And secondly, the Bible actually speaks the very opposite of that. Because grace is the very opposite of God helps those who help themselves. It tells us that we cannot help ourselves. It tells us that we have no ability to do anything to please God or to ever get our slates wiped clean. I love that, uh, that song from Casting Crowns. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. You see, it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Mephibosheth had nothing, did nothing, deserved nothing from David. He didn't try to win the king's favor. All he could do was humbly accept what David gave to him. And what David did for Mephibosheth, God does for us. We're, we're un unworthy, undeserving. And yet, God, with his amazing grace, invites us to the table. David showed him kindness, but not only kindness. He showed him something greater than that. He, he adopted him into his own family. And isn't that so much like what God has done for us? God has not only shown us kindness in wiping away our sins, but God has done more for that, that he has adopted us as sons and daughters into his family. What an amazing God that we have. And one day, we will feast with him at his table for all of eternity. 
We'll sit alongside Peter and Paul and Lydia and Thomas and Matthew and James and John and Barnabas. And we'll sit alongside on that table the martyrs and the reformers and the missionaries who have given their lives in various countries. Sons and daughters of God. And do you know what our song will be? Our song will be Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. You see, that is a story that transforms Firstly, when we understand this message, it transforms our thinking, transforms the way that we see ourselves, transforms the way that we see others. It transforms our, our mission in life. But it not only transforms our mind and our thinking, it transforms the people who we are. For as a man thinks, so he is, Proverbs 23, 7. Oh, I love this subject of God's grace. And every time, you know, I speak on it, I, I, I can hardly stop myself becoming overwhelmed at what God has done for me and what God has done for us. And grace always demands a response. Did you know that? God's grace to us is free, it's unmerited, it's undeserved. We deserve nothing. It's free. Gratis. But it always deserves a response. And as I reflected upon this story again this week, I asked myself, might Mephibosheth have rejected David's gracious offer? Might he have done that? It's ever so kind of you, David, to think of me here in Lodabar. But no thanks. It's a great offer, but no thanks. I've learned over the years to fend for myself, and I don't really need handouts. But thanks for your gracious offer anyway. I think he would have been utterly crazy to have turned down David's offer. David was offering Mephibosheth something that would change his life forever. David's offer was amazing, and yet God's offer is far more wonderful. He offers us a new start, a new status, a new life. Sins forgiven, freedom in Christ, purpose, a hope for the future. And Paul seems just to be lost for words when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, this is far beyond my vocabulary and the ability that I have to explain all of this. And not only him, but for us as well. And the good news is that God promises to take us as we are.
Isn't that great? You know, as you think of yourselves, it's come as you are. Come with all your past and with your problems. Come with your guilt and come with your shame. Come and eat at my table and I will show you what life can really, really be like. It's an offer that we would be foolish to refuse. I love those words uh, found in John chapter 1. Jesus said to those who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that is a promise for you and 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 for me. What an incredible promise that is. Those who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God of God. And just as the king said to Mephibosheth, do not fear, neither do we need to fear as we have a king. A king is not only a wonderful king, but he is also a wonderful loving father who delights in us and loves us as if we were the only one. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. Say it with me, please. Grace changes everything. Please, if there is anything that you remember of this morning, just go and take that with you later on. And when we begin to understand what God has done for us in Christ, our lives will never, ever, ever be the same. Changes our outlook, changes our attitude, changes our past, our present, our future, changes absolutely everything. I'm going to finish. I've been up here long enough. I'm just going to finish with some words that I've used many, many times before, and I've taken them from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and I just want to leave you with these again. And this is what he writes. Grace means that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, I'm invited to take my place at the family in God's family at the table in God's family. You see, it would be an honor for any of us to serve the table. It would have been an honor for Mephibosheth to have served the table of David and his family. But that wasn't the deal. The deal was he came and he sat as a son and a daughter. And that's what God also has done for us.